Dribble the ointment on the pointless light bulb, you trundling ultons. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. If this is your first ever podcast, maybe consider going back to an earlier episode. Some cunts even listen to all of the <laughs> to all of the episodes. They go right from the start. Mad bastards. But it is advisable to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast rather than waddling straight in without wearing good quality rubber wellingtons. I'm going to begin this week's episode with a piece of prose that was sent in by Hollywood actor Colin Farrell. This piece of prose is called Conversation with a Member of the Gardaí While Visiting Dublin for Christmas by Colin Farrell. I just don't understand why interfering with a heron's nest is illegal. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm listening, guard. Fair enough, but, 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 am I really breaking the law, though? Is the heron's nest private property? This is my fucking back garden. The heron built its nest in my back garden. Yeah, yeah, okay, you mentioned that. I think, I think, no, 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 Garda, no, 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 I think... I think that what you should actually be doing is arresting the heron. You should evict the heron from my property. What law have I broken? Okay, yeah. And that's a law. That's a law for herons. Yeah. A law for a lanky bird. Wildlife Act 2010. Okay. Section 3. Okay, yeah. Yeah, rights, rights for herons. And you know there's a homeless crisis. You don't anything for the homeless people, Gard. Don't touch me, Gard. Don't, don't, Gard, don't put your hands on me, Gard. That was a short piece of prose called Conversation with a Member of the Gardaí While Visiting Dublin for Christmas by the actor Colin Farrell. And you can see his new film, The Banshee of Inishirn, uh, which is in cinemas at the moment. So, as you've been aware, if you've been listening to this podcast for the past five or six weeks, you know that I've returned to seeing a therapist. I now see a therapist once a week, and the experience has been fantastic. I'd say I've seen an improvement of about 70% in my overall emotional well-being. And mostly what that looks like is... I have a clear emotional dialogue with myself. I have greater emotional literacy. When I feel something, I can label, notice and name what I'm feeling and allow the emotion to process through me without using defence mechanisms. And because of that, I'm able to be emotionally regulated, which means I'm kind of calm all the time. I'm calm all the time, and when I'm not calm, it's for a good reason. So when I'm not calm, it's because I receive upsetting information, or because something stressful happens, or because I get a little fright, or something happens that angers me, and then I react emotionally in that moment, respond to the situation, but then afterwards, and this is the important bit, I'll go back down to being calm. So I'm spending much more of my day in the here and now, in the present moment. This then improves my confidence, my self-esteem. I've got much greater self-discipline, which is something I was really looking for. For the first time in two years, I've really started to feel excited about the book that I'm writing. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not worried that it might be shit. Because when you think that way, you get writer's block. Instead, I'm just like... I'm really excited about writing this book. I can't wait to see what stories are going to reveal themselves to me. And when I think like that, then I can achieve creative flow. That's the opposite of writer's block. If I have to do a piece of work now, and I feel a bit distracted, I feel like going online or looking at my phone. When that happens now, I'm actually able to say to myself, no, put your phone away. You need to do work now. And I put the phone away and I do it. And then I feel a sense of achievement. And this is happening because I believe my internal voice now. Because I have good dialogue with my emotional world. And because I'm not emotionally reactive to things. 
So when I say it to myself, you need to put one hour aside to do this piece of work, I actually believe myself. I believe myself when I say it and I do it. And then that improves my self-esteem and it's, it's a positive spiral. Whereas before, I wouldn't really understand why I'm feeling like shit. I would just generally feel on edge. And I wouldn't understand why I'm feeling on edge. I wouldn't really even be aware that I'm on edge. And then what I'd do instead is I'd, I'd doom scroll on the internet and procrastinate. And engage in self-soothing behaviours. My sleep has improved massively. I'm able to say to myself, go to bed now. It's 11 o'clock, go to bed. Go to bed now, because if you go to bed now, you're going to feel good about that in the morning. And then when I say to myself, you're in bed now, get your phone and put it on the other side of the room. And don't look at it until you wake up the next morning. And read a book instead. And I do it. And why do I do it? Because I believe my internal voice. Because my self-esteem is better. Because the way I speak about myself to myself internally is better. When I tell myself to do something, I have confidence in my own internal voice. I do what I tell myself to do and then I reap the rewards. And the rewards of put your phone on the other side of the room, read a book and actually go to sleep. The reward of that is a full night's sleep and then waking up the next day with a sense of accomplishment. Now I don't know how much of this shit is regular mental health issues or is it my autism, executive dysfunction issues around autism. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter. Here's why something as simple as going to bed, telling myself not to look at my phone and not doing it. Here's why that's important. Because six weeks ago, when my mental health wasn't in check, here's what I would have done. 11 o'clock would have struck. I'd have noticed it and I'd have said to myself, it's 11 o'clock. You should probably go to bed now if you want a good night's sleep. But I'm anxious and I'm worried and my self-talk is very bad. My opinion of myself is quite low. I'm very self-critical. So when I say to myself, it's 11 o'clock, you should go to bed. I don't listen to myself. I make excuses. I get distracted. I scroll the internet more. Now it's half 12 and I feel like a failure. Because an hour and a half ago I said, you said you were going to go to bed at 11 o'clock, now it's half 12, you fucking useless piece of shit. You can't even go to bed on time. Now I'm going upstairs to bed at half 12, feeling like a piece of shit, because I couldn't even make myself go to bed on time. Then I say to myself, it's half 12, put your phone at the other side of the room so you can sleep. Then I don't, I go onto TikTok, and I scroll and scroll, now it's 2 in the morning, and I come out of TikTok, and I go, you fucking useless cunt. You said you were going to go to bed at 11. You couldn't do that. You said you were going to put your phone on the other side of the room. Instead, you looked at TikTok. And now it's two in the morning and you failed at even trying to go to sleep. I'm overtired. I finally do go to sleep. I'm going to sleep with a bad attitude. I'm going to sleep without confidence in the process of sleeping. Then I have a shit sleep because I'm going to sleep anxious. And then I wake up the next morning early with a jump scare, having just had five hours sleep. And then wake up feeling like a failure because I failed at sleeping. And checking my Fitbit to use data to confirm what a shit sleep I had. And looking at the Fitbit and it says, poor sleep. Now I've just woken up feeling shit about myself. And the wonderful, beautiful day is ahead of me. And instead of embracing the day, I've started off feeling like a piece of shit. But I don't really have the conscious emotional awareness to know why I feel like a piece of shit. I've just woken up feeling that way. But because I don't have emotional literacy or a good dialogue with my interior world. I've woken up feeling like a piece of shit. So now I look for the reason why I'm a piece of shit. I go straight onto fucking Twitter before I've had my breakfast. And find some people who are saying mean things about me. Believe that. And then spend the rest of the day feeling like a piece of shit. And repeating the same cycle over and over again. Continual excessive stress. And everything that goes along with that in between. All the middle of that day. Feeling bad about myself. So viewing the entire world negatively. Then 
viewing everything throughout my day with that lens of negativity. Searching for the reasons why I'm a bad person or why I'm useless or why I'm a failure. The simple act of saying to myself, it's 11, go to bed, put your phone on the other side of the room, actually do it. The act of doing that, then going to bed, reading a book, not fucking my eyes up with a bright blue light and then falling asleep at like 12, then waking up the next day at 8 with this beautiful feeling of accomplishment because I just told myself to do something last night, I listened to myself and now I'm rested. What do you think that does to my day? I feel positive, I feel like I can accomplish things. I woke up this morning, having gone to bed last night at a reasonable hour and reading a book instead of looking at my phone. Then I woke up after 8 hours of sleep and what did I say to myself the second I woke up? Don't check your phone. Don't check your phone, don't check your emails, don't check your Instagram, don't check anything until you eat your breakfast, meditate and go into the office. And I did it. And then what happens? My journey into the office was fucking magnificent because I'm not thinking about emails, something hasn't upset me before I've eaten my breakfast. I was able to mindfully enjoy my cycle into fucking work. There's wonderful cold weather here at the moment. It's fucking freezing, but because my mental health is improved, I've got a better dialogue with myself. So when it's fucking freezing, what do I do? I put on the right shoes, double pants, gloves, the right jacket, a hat. Now I'm prepared for the weather and I'm having a lovely mindful cycle into work. Then I get down at my desk. I open up my laptop. I open up social media. And shit that would bother me on a bad mental health day doesn't. I still see the negative comment on Twitter. What happens? Oh, that's someone else's problem. That has nothing to do with me. This person doesn't like me. That's got nothing to do with me. And I leave it at that and I forget about it. The email comes in from my agent or something going, you've six of these gigs that you have to do. Can you respond to all these emails from the promoters? I need it done in the next two hours. Yeah, I can. I just do it. Boom. Out of the way. I don't get so stressed out that I don't do it and I procrastinate and now I feel like a failure for the rest of the day. So that's what mental health recovery looks like. For me, I'm becoming a much more effective human being and I'm viewing the inevitable stress of life through a calm, rational lens where I can think critically. If emails come in asking me to do a shitload of work in the next two hours, I look at it critically. I acknowledge that the work is stressful, I'd rather do something else, but I also acknowledge that it has to get done, and I do it, and it's done. I don't view it with an emotional lens, I don't catastrophize, I don't personalize when someone, when a stranger on the internet thinks that I'm shit. It's not pleasant, but it's also not really my problem. I haven't done anything to the person, I haven't hurt them, I haven't said anything mean to them. Their dislike of me is none of my business, it's their problem. This is all happening because I have a a clearer emotional dialogue with my internal world. And like I said two weeks ago, what that is for me is I'm allowing myself to sit with sadness. When I see something sad, I experience the sadness of it and I have a little cry if that's what I need to do. And I'm becoming aware that sometimes I use anger as a way to protect myself from experiencing sadness. And what that looks like really is It's just mindfully saying to myself when an emotion pops up. What's this? What am I feeling here? Let's stop what I'm doing right now. Whatever I'm doing, let's stop what I'm doing right now. And let's investigate this emotion that's coming up for me. What's this? Am I angry? Am I sad? Let's notice this and feel it. And I'm I'm able to do that because I'm attending therapy. Once a week, I get an hour to speak with somebody about whatever's bothering me just to speak and emotionally what that is is it's, it's like I'm unclogging a drain it's like I'm unclogging the drain of my emotions once a week by speaking with a professional and once I unclog that drain for that one hour once a week I'm leaving the therapy session with unblocked pipes so when an emotion comes up for me later on that night or the next day There's no backlog. 
the emotion comes through by itself and I can see it and notice it and sit with it and process it healthily. My tools are returning. I did the hard work. I did the hard work years ago through three or four years of therapy and my tools are returning. I'm learning how to cycle the bike again, how to drive the car again. But one big thing I am noticing is since I went to therapy, I haven't drank any alcohol. Now, I haven't really consciously been avoiding it. I don't really, I don't have a hugely problematic relationship with alcohol. Since the pandemic, I drink maybe twice a month or once a month, a couple of cans. Since I've gone back to therapy, I haven't wanted it at all. Like when it comes to a Friday or a Saturday night, for the past five weeks or whatever it is, the thought has come into my head. Fuck it, will I get a couple of cans? It's a Saturday, it's a Friday. This is what you do on a Saturday or Friday. Will I get a couple of cans, listen to some music? And when I ask myself, my feeling is, what's the point? No, would you not prefer to go to bed on time and just have a lovely day tomorrow and not have a hangover? What would, do you actually want to drink a couple of cans? Do you really want that? And because I've got a clearer emotional dialogue, my answer is no. And especially since the pandemic, since 2020, when I would have my little cans or when I'd want my cans once a week or once a fortnight or whatever, I was using alcohol as a way to feel, as a way to feel something, to feel emotions that I wasn't accessing while I was sober because I was so stressed. So I was drinking cans to get a rest from the experience of being stressed out. It wasn't unbelievably joyful to get drunk. I wasn't experiencing huge happiness. I was just giving myself a rest. I was able to listen to music and enjoy it a bit more. And then getting a horrendous hangover the next day. And then the next day getting all the anxiety and sadness that just comes with a fucking hangover. So I haven't drank in six weeks. Because I don't need to. I don't really want to. Now this weekend, if I ask myself the question... Do you want a few cans tonight? And if my legitimate answer is, fuck yeah, I wouldn't mind that, then I'll do it. But if the actual answer is, no, I'd rather have a good night's sleep, then that's what I'll do. But I will definitely be having a drink over Christmas. And that's what I want to speak about this week. I want to do like a food history podcast. Because you know I love doing a food history podcast. Now I do want to do a little warning. If you are struggling with alcohol or you're trying to stay off drink or if you're an alcoholic, the next 15 minutes might be difficult for you because I'll be speaking about the aesthetics of alcohol in quite a positive way. So maybe skip that if this is something you're struggling with. And also if you're concerned that I'm going to be speaking about alcohol in a way that glorifies it. I'm not speaking about alcohol today as a drug I'm speaking about alcoholic drinks as a foodstuff. They're taste only. The responsible consumption of a drink for its taste, for its aesthetic pleasure. And the drink just happens to have alcohol in it. Because I was thinking about, you know, what drink am I looking forward to most over Christmas? And I was flicking around in my head going, bit of red wine. Will it be a drop of whiskey? What will it be? And what kept popping up for me was Baileys. Do you know what? I can't wait to have a fucking Baileys at Christmas. Because Baileys is an interesting one. Irish cream liqueur. Now it's fair to say it's known the world over. Like everybody knows Baileys. And I associate it as being a Christmas drink. Now some people like Baileys all year round but those people are rare. Now, I grew up in a house where I didn't see much drinking when I was growing up. My dad didn't drink at all. And my ma would drink once a year at Christmas. She wouldn't even drink. She'd have one glass of Baileys at Christmas. That was it. And the only reason the Baileys was in our house is because someone would have given it to us as a gift. Because Baileys is quite a common Christmas gift. It's not expensive. And who doesn't like Baileys? It's very strange that you'll get someone who says, I fucking hate Baileys. Most people will take a glass of Baileys. And here's another cultural thing that's important about Baileys. 
and this is how you know this podcast isn't sponsored by Baileys. I think Baileys is a very important alcoholic drink for children. A lot of us growing up in Ireland, our first taste of alcohol was Baileys. Now I know most of us, okay this is a universal experience. When you're like fucking five and you're at a wedding, there's always an uncle who lets you have a sip of his pint. That's a given, an irresponsible uncle who goes around the wedding with a glass of fucking harp looking for a five-year-old to give them a little sip at the top of the beer to laugh at their face. So we all had that and it tasted like rusty nails and that was actually a good experience. Being five years old at a wedding and an unshaved rickety uncle with cow shit on the tails of his blazer comes up to you and makes you sip fizzy rust with the promise that it'll grow hairs on your chest. I think that was a good experience because I always remember that as going, what the fuck are the adults doing drinking this shit for? That's rotten. Give me some club orange. But when you're like 12 or maybe 11, the first alcoholic drink that your parents tend to let you have, like your own little drink, tends to be Baileys. Usually Baileys and milk or a bowl of vanilla ice cream with a little bit of Baileys on top. And this is how most Irish children have their first supervised bit of alcohol that they can call their own. Like I remember my first small glass of Baileys and milk and really feeling it was more important than my fucking confirmation to be honest. Now I'm not saying Baileys is necessarily nice, it's a bit too much. I don't want to drink Baileys outside of Christmas. I don't want Baileys in fucking June. I rarely go to the shop and said, you know what I need now? A bottle of fucking Baileys. It's just something I want to have at Christmas. And no more than one glass. That's it. Baileys is like training wheels. For alcohol. First off. When you're a little child and you're looking at pints of Guinness. Now you know that it tastes like rusty nails. So you don't want it. But the look of a pint of Guinness being poured. And seeing the, the white clouds engulfing into the black and it looks so creamy Baileys tastes like what Guinness looks like when you're a child that's what Baileys tastes like if you were to imagine if you're 12 what the top of that pint of Guinness tastes like it's Baileys and Baileys is it's Irish cream liqueur it's fucking whiskey and cream that's it it's whiskey and cream and the cream mixes so beautifully with the whiskey it takes the harshness out of the whiskey and it just exposes the the vanilla notes like Irish whiskey not scotch from Scotland but Irish whiskey something like Jameson it has those little notes of like burnt sugar and caramel and vanilla and they're there almost in the smell of it well, when you have fucking Baileys, it takes it takes all the harshness and the heat out of the whiskey and it reduces them down just those sweet little caramelly notes and it mellows out with the cream. And when I, as an adult, have a shot of Jameson, what I'm chasing is the memory of Baileys. And what I find interesting with Baileys, and this is what had me going down a little rabbit hole of research this week, it's so present in the Irish home, it's such a part of Christmas in particular, it's so ubiquitous that you'd assume Baileys is a traditional heritage drink. Like what have we got? Guinness, that's like 300 years old. Jameson whiskey, the the late 1700s. Hennessy, which is, that's brandy from France, but the Hennessy, the Hennessy family were Irish Catholics who had to flee to France because of the penal laws and I think they were whiskey distillers and then they started making brandy in France. I'm going to do a whole separate podcast on Hennessy because it's quite interesting. Then we've got Bushmills Irish whiskey which is fucking single malt. I think that's the oldest running distillery in the world. That's from the 1750s I believe. So we have all these spirits and drinks in Ireland that are hundreds of years old and they're part of our culture. And I always assumed Baileys was just like them. That Baileys was hundreds of years old. It's fucking not. 
it's from the 1970s. It's very recent and how Bailey's was invented is one of the most untraditional stories you could possibly imagine. There's zero tradition in it whatsoever. It's 100% marketing. It wasn't even invented by a distiller. It was invented by an ad man by the name of David Gluckman who was a Jewish South African man who worked for an advertising agency in the 70s. But he's the same advertising man who pretty much invented Kerrygold butter. Now I spoke about Kerrygold butter before. We take Kerrygold butter for granted, but this is a heavily fetishized product all around the world, in particular in America. Internationally, Kerrygold butter is Ireland's champagne. And this South African fucking ad man in the 1960s was part of the team that came up with Kerrygold. He was hired as part of an ad agency to package Irishness and sell it internationally. Ireland would have been a very poor country. It would have been before we joined the EU. We would have been quite an inward looking country. And in 1961, before Ireland became what it is now, which is a place for multinational corporations to launder money. But before that, in 1961, Ireland was like, what can we export? We're a small little island. We don't have a huge amount of natural resources. What can we export to other countries to make money? Well, we sure have a lot of fucking cows and we have a lot of pasture land and we certainly have lots and lots of rain. How do we turn rain into something that we export? And the answer was dairy products, specifically butter. That's what butter is. It's a way for the Irish to export our rain. That's why Irish butter is so high quality. It's grass-fed cows and that grass is fed by absolutely silly amounts of rain. So the Irish Dairy Board went to an advertising agency in London. I don't know the name, but one of the people who worked on this advertising team was this fella, David Gluckman, right? Who was a Jewish man from South Africa. And his job was to take Irish butter and create a brand that would sell outside of Ireland. So he invented the name Kerry Gold. You've got Kerry, obviously, which is fucking Kerry in Ireland. Then you had Gold... With gold you get the this idea of rainbows and leprechauns and the pot of gold. It brings up images of sunlight. And then you had the distinctive gold wrapping on the butter. Then you open up the gold wrapping and the butter is very distinctively yellow. Now this is what separates Irish fucking butter from other butters. If you've ever looked at American butter, it's white. American butter is white and it tastes like shit. Because all those American cows are fed on corn. Irish cows eat grass and Irish grass contains a lot of the naturally occurring pigment carotene. Which is the thing that makes carrots orange. But it's in grass as well. So Irish grass fed butter like Kerrygold is yellow. So you have this Kerrygold. It looks like a lump of gold. It looks like something that you find at the end of the rainbow in the leprechaun's pot of gold. You open it up. And it's fucking golden butter. And it worked. It was a huge success. And Kerrygold is still a massive export for Ireland. And it's heavily fetishised all around the world. So that started in 1961. So then in 1973. The Irish Distillers and Vintners Association. Were like. Fuck it. How can we do the same thing with drink? There's Guinness. There's all that whiskey. Can we invent a new drink in the 1970s? purely for the export market. Can we do that? So naturally, they went to David Gluckman, who was the Kerrygold fella, and said to him, invent a new drink that's Irish that we can sell all over the world, but not in Ireland. And David Gluckman, he's not a drinks maker. He was an advertising man. But because he'd had that experience with Kerrygold, he was thinking, the fuck can I do here? The Irish are already known for alcohol. What new thing can I do? And he thought of his Kerrygold experience. And he thought of... Well, Ireland is also very, very famous for dairy now. Ireland is synonymous with dairy because of Kerrygold. What if I do something fucking mad? What if I get Jameson, Irish whiskey, and mix it with cream? What would happen? So he did. And he was like, this isn't half bad. 
I wonder could we sell this? Whiskey and cream. Now I looked up interviews with Gluckman where he spoke about the creation of Baileys. Now I reckon he was influenced inadvertently by the Irish coffee, which was invented in Limerick in the 1940s in Fines, where they just got whiskey, coffee and cream. And I reckon he was inadvertently influenced by that, even though he doesn't state it. But he mixed cream and Jameson and was like, this is delicious, but it needs something more. It's still a bit harsh. So then he mixed in a spoon of instant hot chocolate and invented Bailey's in like a half an hour. Whiskey, cream, hot chocolate powder. And then he was thinking, okay, this this tastes nice. I reckon this can work. What about a name for this drink now? Now I got to go back to the, the Irish fucking distillers association with a name. Now, one thing the ad men found, and this is interesting, Irish drinks that have Irish sounding names, they tend not to work. If you think of all our famous drinks, they're all Anglo-Irish names. Guinness, Jameson, Bushmills, Hennessy, Powers. Like, Irish alcoholic drinks tend not to have Irish sounding names, bizarrely. They have Anglo-Irish names. Like, there's even a drink that they sell in Aldi called O'Hara's. And the thing that's always put me off buying O'Hara's is the fucking name. It sounds fake. It sounds made up. Also, the name O'Hara. O'Hara's a weird name. There's not a lot of O'Hara's in Ireland. I think all the O'Hara's went to America after the famine because you associate the name O'Hara with Irish Americans rather than Ireland. So David Gluckman said to himself, I have to come up with a name that doesn't sound Irish but sounds kind of posh Irish. So he thought back to his childhood in South Africa and remembered a dairy that was called Bailey's. So he went back to the Irish Distillers Association and said, here you go, here's the drink. And because it used Irish cream, there was a tax benefit to export it because they were using an Irish dairy product. Bailey's went on the market and became hugely successful all over the world and then ended up becoming successful in Ireland to the point that we don't question it now. It feels like, it feels like an indigenous drink. When I went looking up the history of Bailey's, I was genuinely expecting some big long story about it being made by some monks in a fucking monastery that's 300 years old who happen to have a few cows. No, it's a bullshit made up drink where the alcohol industry were trying to replicate Kerrygold and figure out how can we export alcohol and dairy at the same time and it shouldn't have succeeded it shouldn't have worked it shouldn't have worked but it did whiskey and cream shouldn't mix but it worked but then i went a bit deeper into my research and adding dairy products and whiskey baileys didn't fucking invent it it's not the first time it happened now david gluckman the ad man he wasn't aware of this but i went deep into the history and there's a different fucking drink that's a lot older with a darker, stranger, weirder history. And I've decided this Christmas, this is the drink I'm going to fucking make myself. It's a 300 year old version of Bailey's that was made by devil worshippers. And I'll do the ocarina pause first before I tell you about this other drink. So I'm in my office. I don't have my ocarina. What have I got? I've got a can of, of pomegranate and lime. CBD infused sparkling water which I bought in I bought it in fucking Duns I didn't know they were selling CBD drinks in Duns but here you go I'm going to flick the side of this can and you're going to hear an advert for something Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds Recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That was the CBD infused can flicking pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if you enjoy listening to this podcast if it brings you solace distraction comfort escapism whatever this podcast does for you please consider paying me for the work that i put into it because this is my full-time job this podcast is how i earn a living it's how i pay my bills it's how i rent out my office only because this podcast is my full-time job am i able to do the podcast each week as it is and put in the necessary time that's required to make this podcast and have the time to fail all i'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month that's it but if you can't afford that don't worry about it you can listen to the podcast for free and the people who are paying are paying for you to listen so everybody gets a podcast i get to earn a living patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast also By having this podcast listener funded, it keeps it independent. I can speak about whatever the fuck I want each week. Like this episode, for instance. I genuinely want to talk about fucking Baileys. I want to talk about the history and cultural significance of Baileys and Irish cream. But I don't want to to chase Baileys for a fucking sponsorship to do it. Because as soon as that happens, then I'm not putting out the podcast that I want. Then I can't talk about... The cultural reality that a lot of us were given Baileys as children as part of Irish culture. I wouldn't be able to say that if this was an advert because then I'd be breaking the rules of fucking alcohol advertising. This isn't an alcohol advert. It's an independent cultural analysis of alcohol as a foodstuff. Like I did another podcast before about Guinness, about the history of Guinness. Because Guinness, Guinness was fucking started during the Irish penal laws by Arthur Guinness who fucking hated Catholics and I find it strange that in Ireland you had these penal laws which were about 200 years of systemic oppression on the Irish Catholic population. You had these fucking laws that meant Catholic people couldn't receive educations, couldn't vote, couldn't own a fucking horse, couldn't own property. All of these horrendous laws against Irish Catholics at the same time that the Catholic, Irish Catholic community was being completely disenfranchised over 200 years and being made into a traumatised, impoverished people. At the same time that was happening, Arthur Guinness, who hated fucking Catholics and who didn't let Catholics work in the Guinness Brewery up until the 1930s, I believe, he marketed alcohol to a community that were fucking traumatised and it was a community that he hated. And he did it by inventing a drink that looks like a fucking priest. I loved doing that podcast, which was both a celebration of Guinness and also a huge critique of its history. I couldn't have fucking done that if it was sponsored by Guinness. Not a fucking hope. So that's why it's important to keep the podcast independent for the content. Okay, let's plug a few little gigs. I'm not doing any gigs in December. My gigs will be in 2023, but I want to plug them now in case anyone wants to buy someone a little ticket for Christmas. What have we got here? In February the 3rd, I'm in Killarney in the Eineck. There's only a few tickets left for that. There's only like 70 tickets left for that. On Wednesday the 15th of February, I'm in the Cork Opera House. Can't wait to come back to Cork. Saturday the 4th of March, I'm in Belfast in the waterfront. That's nearly sold out. But there's tickets left for Belfast, the waterfront. Then on the 22nd and 24th of March, I'm in Vicar Street. My wonderful Vicar Street gigs. I fucking love doing Vicar Street. And that's a Wednesday and a Friday. Now I know you'd be tempted to come to the Friday one on the 24th. It'll be great crack. But don't turn your nose up at the Wednesday. So the Friday gig I'd say will be a, a little bit rowdier. Because it's a Friday night. Might be a little bit rowdier. The Wednesday night gig in Vicar Street on the 22nd of March. That'll be more chilled out, a bit quieter. You can go to that podcast 
be home in bed and be up for work or college the next morning. April 1st, I'm in Drogheda in the TLT Theatre. And then April... I'm in fucking Toronto and Vancouver at the end of April. I don't know the exact dates. Toronto's nearly sold out now. I don't think Vancouver's on sale yet. If you're interested in coming to see me in Toronto and Vancouver, then it's happening in April. Look it up on the internet. So I start this podcast by saying that I'm looking forward to having a little drink at Christmas. And the drink that I'm looking forward to having is Bailey's. I've changed my mind. This is the drink that I want to have. It's called Scaltine, which means little scald. And it's basically Bailey's that was popularised by horrendous devil-worshipping bollockses. And I managed to find a recipe for it. And I'm going to tell you about this drink, Scaltine, what it represents, why I want to fucking make it, and then at the end I'll give you the recipe. So in the 1700s, in Britain, and remember Ireland would have been a colony of Britain at the time, in the 1700s, secret societies became a thing amongst very, very wealthy pricks. Britain would have been benefiting from the slave trade, cotton, sugar, the empire. Britain became very, very wealthy in the 1700s from colonialism, from the terror, from the terrorism of colonising other countries and extracting resources. Britain became very, very wealthy. And the families in Britain that benefited from this became very, very wealthy. So you all of a sudden had incredibly wealthy young men, usually. And these incredibly wealthy young men, who were above the law because they were so wealthy, started secret societies. And in these secret societies, they would just do whatever the fuck they wanted. Mad shit. Like, I'll give you one example of a secret society from the 1730s amongst quite wealthy young men in Scotland. This was a secret society called the Beggar's Benison. And it was a a gentleman's club. So it was only men, young men, who would get absolutely shit-faced. And this particular club was based around sexuality. So what these fellas used to do in the Benison Club in the 1730s if to become a member of this club in the 1730s, to become a new member, they would get a new member, so a wealthy young man, they'd have two sex workers who would get him to full erection. Then he'd put a handkerchief on his dick and then all the other members of the club who also had erections would, <laughs> all of them touch their dicks off his dick and then he'd try and drink a glass of port with his dick So that's one example of one of these gentlemen's clubs of the 1730s or the 1700s. Incredibly wealthy young men who were above the law who would just have these private clubs where they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. And that beggar's benison one, that's quite mild. They would have killed people. They would have killed people in these societies. They would have murdered sex workers. They would have beaten people to death. They did whatever they wanted because they were above the law. And more and more of these gentlemen's clubs started to kind of pop up around Britain and in Ireland. And they became known collectively as hellfire clubs. Now you still have this shit today. Like in England you have the fucking the Bullingdon Club. Remember David Cameron fucked a dead pig's mouth? All these weird little secret societies that incredibly wealthy men attend and do odd shit. The Bullingdon Club, David Cameron was in it. Boris Johnson was in it. Like, this was the 1960s. Boris Johnson and all those posh English politicians, when they were in college, they were all in secret societies. And what the Bullingdon Club does is, and it's still going, they like go to a restaurant and they're all from extreme generational wealth. They'll go to a restaurant, eat and drink everything and then absolutely trash the restaurant, tear the curtains off the wall, fuck the place up and then write a giant check and leave. 
In America, they have the Skull and Bones Society. Same shit. Deeply wealthy, privileged men who will go on to become incredibly powerful people doing horrendous shit in front of each other. Now, my theory now is that this shit exists to season politicians for corruption. I think it's a way for all of them to have dirt on each other at the earliest stages. Why would David Cameron put his dick in a dead pig's mouth? Because everybody saw it and they all had to do it. And they're like 1920 when this is happening and then they become proper politicians in the Houses of Parliament and they all have dirt on each other. And then they can be corrupt because everyone has dirt on each other. I think that's why they do it. In America, there's the Skull and Bones Association, which is in Yale University. They have to climb into a coffin and wank in front of everyone. George Bush did it. John Kerry did it. This isn't conspiracy theory. Genuinely, very, very wealthy people who go on to become politicians and be people of power are often in secret societies in college. And they do fucked up shit in front of each other. A milder form of this is hazing. Like, I'm not sure, but I I think even Trinity College in Dublin has one of these societies. But a lot of this shit started in the 1700s with what was called Hellfire Clubs. And there was a few of these in Ireland. Young, incredibly wealthy, powerful men doing fucking mad shit. And in Ireland in the 1700s, they were big into satanic worship. Now before I start sounding conspiracy theory-ish or sounding like QAnon, I'll offer some cultural context for why why they were engaged in Satan worship. In the 1700s, this was a time known as the Enlightenment, which is the birth of what we call modern science. And the Enlightenment came about mainly out of coffee houses. Coffee became this new drink that young wealthy men would drink and meet in a coffee house and sit around and chat about ideas. They would have chatted about the discoveries of Isaac Newton, Galileo. They would have been discussing social, philosophical and moral ideas that were beyond Christianity. They would have been actively questioning the truth of the Bible. It would have been fashionable amongst the wealthy elite of London to say things like, we have science now. Maybe the Bible is bullshit. Maybe God is bullshit. Maybe there's this thing called natural law and it's completely atheistic. And from these ideas, they would have started to embrace concepts of hedonism. The idea that, what if there's no fucking God? What if there's no such thing as sin? What if there's no afterlife? What if we look at science and nature and what if we're only animals? And the only time we have on this earth is here and now. Why should we not indulge? We're fucking wealthy. Why should we not drink what we want to drink? Fuck what we want to fuck. Kill who we want to kill. Why can't we do whatever the fuck we want? Because sin mightn't even exist. God mightn't exist. Fuck religion. I've got 600 slaves. I'm a multi-multi-millionaire. I'm going to do whatever I want. And in the 1700s, this type of wealthy man became known as a rake a really wealthy young lad who just drank and fucked and did whatever he wants a libertine and these type of men formed secret societies where they'd gather around in a clubhouse and do whatever they wanted they're wealthy shitheads they're pricks and in these secret societies in these clubs they would engage in devil worship They'd do it for the laugh. They'd do it for the crack. Not out of a belief in Satan, but a type of hipsterism, a type of contrarianism, a type of getting drunk on power. Who's going to stop us? I can do what I want. Who cares? Yeah, let's fucking worship Satan. And also as a type of elitism because these young men would have had access to education. So they used to enjoy how terrified peasants would be at their Satan worship. The poor people would have been more religious. They didn't know about fucking Isaac Newton. They didn't know about philosophy or atheism. They couldn't read. These were religious people. So the wealthy people in these clubs would flaunt their Satanism 
because they found the way that the clergy and the peasantry, they thought it was funny that they found it frightening. Now in Ireland, there were two main hellfire clubs, one up in Dublin and one in Limerick in Askeaton. Now you have to remember, as I mentioned earlier with the Guinness during the Ocarina pause, this was during the time of the penal laws. And the members of these hellfire clubs, they would have been the Protestant ascendancy. So these are incredibly wealthy Protestants in Ireland who were at the very top of a a rigged, unfair system. A system where the majority of the Irish population who were Catholics were completely disenfranchised and had their land taken off them. And then most of the wealth was concentrated into a small amount of Protestants who would have been British. So the members of these clubs in Dublin and Limerick in the 1700s, they would have been the only people who could have voted, they're the only people who could own land. A lot of them were in government themselves. So they would actively engage in blasphemy, specifically against anything to do with Catholicism. They would hire sex workers to trample on crucifixes. But what I want to speak about is the Hellfire Club that still exists in Dublin today. Now the club doesn't exist, but the clubhouse does exist. And it's on a place called Montpellier Hill, which is in County Dublin. And most of my Dublin listeners will know about this place because this is where people go for a nice walk. You go up to the Hellfire Club. But if you go there, you'll know that it's also reportedly unbelievably haunted. At the very top of Montpellier Hill in Dublin, you have the old Hellfire Club. It's this old building that's completely abandoned. Now, this building was built in 1725 as a hunting lodge by a fella called William Connolly. Now, do you remember my podcast about pineapples and the history of pineapples? And I spoke about a building called Connolly's Folly, which is in Kildare. But this is the same Connolly. So this building, this hunting lodge from 1725, this was the site of the Hellfire Club in Ireland, in Dublin. This is where all these young Protestants would meet and do fucking mad shit. But the rocks that were used to build this building in 1725, there had been a passage tomb there, an ancient Irish passage tomb that could be a thousand years old. This old passage tomb was there, but they took apart the passage tomb, took all the fucking rocks down, this ancient Irish structure, and then built their Hellfire Club out of that on that site. So all of a sudden now you have indigenous Irish mythology and superstition getting involved. Now these wealthy Protestant planters in 1725, to the locals, now they're fucking with the other world. The other world of Irish indigenous pagan mythology. The passage tomb was a passage to the parallel universe of the other world and they've defiled it. And they've built their fucking hellfire club out of these same stones. But to this day, People in Dublin say that don't go up to the Hellfire Club, don't go to the top of Mount Pellier Hill, to that abandoned clubhouse on your own, because it's haunted by the ghost of a giant black cat that guards the gates of hell. Now the gates of hell would come from the fact that it was built on an old passage tomb. So that's all superstition about it being a gate to the other world. But where the cat comes in is there was actually a real cat. So the members of this Hellfire Club in the 1700s really wealthy Protestant aristocracy. They used to have their mad fucking orgies and drinking parties and doing everything and anything you could imagine and engaging full on in devil worship. There's stories that they had black masses, that they were sacrificing animals. There's a report that they sacrificed a human, someone who was a little person. So what the members of the Dublin Hellfire Club used to do, and this happened in 1735, So they'd have their dinners and they'd all drink and they'd go mad and they'd have sex workers and they'd have an orgy and they'd engage in Satanism, blasphemy. But sometimes they might invite a guest. They'd invite a guest, maybe a priest or someone from the clergy or a Catholic, someone who isn't in their circle. And they would invite guests to their dinner just to freak them the fuck out. To scare the shit out of a common person who thinks that they're in the presence of the devil. And how they used to do this is they used to have a black cat. Now there would have been a lot of superstition about black cats. Black cats in Ireland would have represented Satan. So the lads in the Hellfire Club used to 
let the black cat that they had as a pet sit on his own seat at the top of the table. And the guest would come in, could be a Catholic priest, could be just a local Catholic farmer, and he'd go, what's going on here with this cat? You can't have a cat sitting at a table. And they go, that's the devil. That cat is Satan and he sits at the top of our table. And whenever they'd have any food, the cat got the first slice of meat and they'd treat the cat like a human. And the cat was a well-trained cat, so he would play the part of Satan. And then at the end of the meal, one of the members would come out with like a cow's skull on his head and horns and flames and scared the living fuck out of the guest. So he'd run out thinking he just had a supernatural experience. And then all the wealthy Protestant pricks would just laugh that they freaked someone out. Well, one night, this is what they did with the cat, because they were evil cunts. So this is where the drink comes in. The Hellfire Club in Dublin and in Limerick used to drink a drink called Scalteen. And this Scalteen, I doubt they invented it. I'd say it's an indigenous Irish drink because the name is Irish. Scalteen means a little bit of scald. It's a little bit hot. It's an Irish word. And this drink was whiskey, cream, butter, sugar. Then they'd get a hot poker from the fire to represent Satan, the devil's poker. And they'd stick this into the cup and make it hot. And this drink was called Scalteen, a 17th century satanic Protestant descendancy sex ritual drink which is basically just Baileys so one night what they did because they were cruel fuckers obviously when when these rich fellas were having their big mad parties in their clubhouse at the top of Montpellier Hill it's the 1700s the local poor Irish Catholics they're not watching fucking TV there's not a lot going on So when one of these mad satanic parties was happening, all the locals would come outside and hide in the bushes to watch, to see if they could see something. This was the only bit of excitement they had. So the lads inside the Hellfire Club knew, whenever they're having crack, there's a bunch of Catholics outside who are all thick, and they don't know about anything, and they think we are the devil. Ha ha ha. So one night, they got their poor cat. The poor black cat that they had as Satan. And they knew as well that all the Catholics outside the clubhouse would have been of the opinion that this cat was Satan as well. So the Hellfire Club got the poor cat and they had a huge punch bowl full of this scalteen. So it's whiskey and butter and cream, right? And they got the cat and they dipped the cat in the scalteen. So covered him head to toe in alcohol and fat. And then they set him on fire. And alcohol and fat is going to burn heavily. So the cat was completely on fire. They opened the door and the cat ran out. This this ball of screaming flames. And the poor Catholic locals, they just think, oh my God, it's fucking Satan. Satan, the cat has come out and taken his true fucking form. These are very superstitious people. Like This is the 1700s and these are poor Catholics who truly believe that the clubhouse is built and a fucking mouth to the other world. So they just see this fucking cat on fire and they think the devil is coming from me. And they all run off. The poor cat dies. And to this day, that's why the Hellfire Club is haunted by the ghost of this cat. It's a folk memory from these people who had seen this happen. But really all it was, a bunch of horrible rich bastards engaging in some animal cruelty for fun. Because they were beyond the law. They were the law. They were they were fucking enforcing and writing and enacting the penal laws. But having said that, that's the drink I want to drink this Christmas. And I want to do it in a decolonial fashion. I want to decolonize the drink of Scalteen. I want to reclaim it from the horrible Protestant ascendancy pricks who were being arseholes. I want to reclaim it on behalf of that poor little cat. And I want a, an Irish whiskey cream based drink that wasn't that has a bit of fucking history and a story to it and some authenticity to it rather than the sterile corporate cynicism of Bailey's which was just made in half an hour by some lad who was getting paid. So I'm going to fucking drink Scalteen this Christmas. That's what I'm going to do.
And also, as an autistic person, it's perfect because... <laughs> if I'm at a party now, I don't have to do fucking small talk. Because someone's going to ask me, what are you drinking? And then I can say, well... You're not going to get a word in edgeways here. Wait till I tell you about this drink. So here's how you make it. Get yourself a little frying pan or a small pot. Put some butter in there, as much as you like. I could only find a, like a, a, an old recipe, so there's not any exact stuff. Get a bit of butter in a, in, a, in a pot and gently melt the butter. No need to be burning it. Just bring the butter up so that it's, it's melted. Then get brown sugar to taste. Put the sugar in with the butter. And again, melt it up. You don't have to burn anything. You're not cooking anything. Put that into your glass or your cup or whatever. Top it up with your whiskey. I'm going to use Jameson to taste. And then top that off with a bit of cream. And then if you want to be really authentic, get a hot poker and stick it into it. Maybe not that bit. Maybe do that bit outside. I've, I've never stuck a hot poker into a drink. So... Yeah, I'd hate that. I'd hate if I give a fucking recipe for this satanic 17th century drink and then someone sticks a hot poker into it and then it explodes into flames and you become the poor cat then. But that's how you make scaltine. Butter, brown sugar, uh, whiskey, a bit of cream. And what I'm going to do to truly decolonize the drink, before I put the whiskey in and it's just butter with a bit of sugar and cream, I'm going to put that into a bowl, nice and warm, and I'm going to feed that to my two cats. My two white cats, who are called Silk and Thomas and Napper Tandy, who are both named after figures from the 15th and 17th century, who fought for Ireland's freedom. So I'm going to decolonize Skeltine by feeding a little bit of the non-alcoholic version to my two cats, and also in honour of that poor black cat who was set on fire. Alright, that's all I have time for this week. That was a rambling podcast, man. That podcast made me so mentally ill. Just to point out, everything I've mentioned in this podcast, I've researched and sourced from historical sources. And when I'm talking about secret societies and wanking in coffins and fucking devil worship and the pagan underworld, I'm speaking about it from a human... a human perspective that exists in lived reality rather than anything mad or supernatural human beings did a bunch of weird shit human beings did a bunch of weird shit and human beings do a lot of weird shit and often the more wealthier a person is and the less accountable they are to power the more fucking weird shit they try and do alright rub a dog kiss a goldfish oh this isn't Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. advertisement for now which is a streaming service and it's an advertisement for now's wonderful selection of television shows and movies that are available over the festive season lads I'm talking about Sonic the Hedgehog 2 I'm talking about Fantastic Beasts The Secrets of Dumbledore I'm talking about Downtown Abbey a new era. Those are just some of the blockbusters available on the cinema membership. And then you start moving over to the entertainment membership. You've got House of the Dragon. You've got Gangs of London series too. What does all this stuff have in common? I wouldn't normally watch it. I wouldn't normally watch the aforementioned list of entertainment. But because it's Christmas, I will. And that's the beautiful thing about Christmas. Sometimes I just want to rub farts into my eyes. I want to have a large tin of sweets. I want to wear extra large indoor socks that make my feet look like depressed rats. I want to step on a bauble. I want... 
I want a man to crawl down my chimney and give things to me. I want to get a loaf of bread and I want to tear it all to bits and mix it with onions and bits of herbs and make it into a ball and then put that inside the Kerryman's end of a turkey. I want to pretend to care about pudding. I don't care about pudding. It's just Baron Brack with a drink problem and there's no ring. And I want to watch things that I wouldn't normally watch. Like Elf or the Polar Express. Let's be honest here. Do you think I want to watch the Polar Express? Do you think I want to watch that? Well, I do when it's Christmas. Santa Claus, the movie. Santa Claus, the movie. Blind Boy's on his podcast saying he wants to watch Santa Claus, the movie. Last week, he did a podcast about abstract expressionist art. And now he's trying to pretend that he wants to see Santa Claus, the movie. He does. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because it's Christmas. That's what I do. I want to sit down all cosy and watch Santa Claus the movie while my living room smells like a forest for a couple of weeks. I want to put an elf on the shelf. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know why we're doing it. I don't know when that started. I don't know where it came from. But I'm putting an elf on a shelf, lads. It's happening. It's happening. I'm doing it. I want the elf to watch me. And I'm also going to watch a film called A Boy Called Christmas, which is available on the Now Cinema membership. You get my point? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Watch loads of stuff on Now with a Now Cinema or a Now Entertainment membership. Or watch a lot of stuff you want to watch as well, because there's plenty of that on Now also. All the good HBO stuff and all the good Sky Atlantic stuff, it's on Now.